Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. We write the truth of it on our hearts, indelibly be glorified in this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Integrity. When you look that word up in a dictionary, you find a definition, and it speaks of togetherness, wholeness, uh, you read synonyms of integrity and it comes up like words of goodness, honesty, incorruptibility, irreproachability. Words like honor, words like virtue, words like character come up. When we think of integrity, the one with the most integrity is God himself. He is perfect in all his attributes. He's perfect he has always been perfect. He will always be perfect. God is the only one who's never had to improve because he was perfect and has been perfect forever. God has never improved even in the slightest degree. God has never learned anything. God has never observed uh, events on earth and said, I will learn from that. He's uh, better than that now. He flooded the world and he's better than that now. He was perfect in his judgment then and he will be perfect in his judgment forever. He is altogether perfect in all that he is. He's perfect in his justice. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his mercy. He's perfect in his sovereignty. It's not like some attributes are more highly developed than others, but he's working on those. He's altogether perfect in all that he is. He is perfection. 
And by the very definition of perfection, there can be no measure of improvement. To improve something admits the fact that it wasn't quite perfect. And God is perfect and has been perfect forever. And God is perfect in all his attributes. He's perfect in love. He's perfect in justice. He's perfect in righteousness, in holiness, in sovereignty, and in power. And he's perfect in what we call omniscience. He's always known everything. He not only knows the end from the beginning, but he decrees the end from the beginning and says, I will achieve all my purposes. That's the God of the Bible. This is not plan B. We're always in plan A. We're doing and we're observing the will of God from eternity past. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, we read. Ephesians 1.11. So, being perfect in knowledge, past, present, and future, he's perfect also in truth. He's a God of integrity. Now, in contrast to all of that, there's people like you and me. As a dad, I've always hesitated to make promises, knowing the simple fact I may not be able to achieve those promises or fulfill them. So I'm very reticent to say to my kids, we will do this. Come the summer, we will do that. That's because I don't know the next minute of my life, let alone the next day, the next week. But God does. And when God makes a promise, he's taken into account all possibilities and he knows what will happen and he knows he will fulfill every promise he has made. He's taken into account all of our activity, all of the opposition of the devil, he's taken it into account and said, I will do this. We read things like this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It doesn't matter what the nations do, they're a drop in the bucket, God will achieve all his purposes. That's the God of the Bible. I don't even know what the next minute of my life looks like, nor do you. We can think I know everything. Do you realize? You don't. You don't know the next minute. You often have planned a day and it doesn't go the way you planned because events happen that you did not know would happen. God, when he makes a promise, knows it will happen. I can say I'm going to meet you at 10 o'clock for uh, an early lunch and yet I don't know for sure I will be there or that you will be there or that there will be lunch or that the restaurant we're going to meet at will actually exist. I don't know any of that, but we make promises. It's therefore a good promise uh, when we fulfill it and it's a good, pr uh, good principle to not make promises lightly. I was brought up with this as a bottom line mantra, your word is all you got. That's bad English, but the point's made. If, if someone can't trust your word, they can't trust you. You and your word are inseparable. So, let's be people of our word so we can be counted upon. If we say something, we'll do it. We read in Psalm 15 of those who may dwell in the holy hill of God and one of the answers is this he who swears to his own hurt and does not change in other words we say I'll do this and though it might cost me it's to my hurt that I've said this I'm going to get this thing done as much as it depends on me whatever it takes integrity implies being truthful and 
incorruptible and not someone who's a liar, someone who just says things for the sake of it. Do you take your words seriously? I say all this because God, when he makes a promise, has taken into account all possibilities and with total knowledge and with total power says, this is what I will do. God's word is certain and that certainty provides us something called hope. Unlike worldly hope, which is something that is a little bit fragile, we hope for good weather, we hope for this to happen, we hope to marry, we hope to have children, we hope to have this, we hope, we hope, we hope. We don't always know if our hopes will materialize, whether they'll come to pass. That's not the case with God. God's word will stand forever and will be fulfilled. Not one word of his will fall to the ground without being accomplished. Jesus said, heaven and earth, think about that, that's everything, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is more enduring than anything you and I can see. As we come to this passage, we see in verses 11 and 12, the writer wants us to understand hope. We desire each one of you to so, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Not a fly-by-night kind of hope, but a hope that materializes and stays until the end so that we're not sluggish, but we imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so that's where the writer is taking us and as the example he wants to introduce to us, the example being Abraham in verse 13. From verse 13 onwards, the writer wishes us to see the example of this kind of hope under pressure and the faith and the patience that it takes to inherit those promises. And he writes that we might be imitators of those who act in that way. Verse 13, for when God made a promise, promise is a key word in Hebrews. Keep your place in chapter 6. In fact, if you have a ribbon in your Bible, put it to chapter 6 because we'll be going to other places. Go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see, faith is not about what we can muster in and of ourselves. It's about realizing the trustworthiness of the God who promises. Have faith in God rather than faith in faith. Have faith in God. God is altogether trustworthy. He's perfect and he's perfectly trustworthy, and that is the basis of our hope, a sure expectation of the future. Back to chapter 7 of Hebrews, and we see the promise in a noun form, verse 6, Hebrews 7, verse 6, but this man who does not have uh, his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is 
enacted on better promises. Chapter 9 and verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Chapter 10, verse 36. If you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Faith and promise go hand in hand. Faith is not some abstract thing, but a reliance on a God who promises who will not fail to fulfill those promises. So we read in verse 13 of Hebrews 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Now, the promise made to Abraham is central in our Bibles. In fact, if you're in the kingdom of God, if you've been born again, you've entered into the kingdom of God, you are in the kingdom because of a promise God made to Abraham. Hold your place in Hebrews. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 as we set this up where we're going today. Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse 29. Did I say something else? Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God made a promise to Abraham that there would be seed that are as the stars in the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And if you are in Christ, you are a fulfillment of the promise God gave Abraham. This is big. This is central in our Bibles. More than this, the gospel itself is a fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. We're in Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, look at this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So when God made the promise to Abraham, it was a declaration of the gospel. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, that's plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So when God made the promise about the seed, in view was Christ himself. In view was the gospel itself. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that it could give give life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith 
in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the gospel is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. We look back and we know more of the details of the gospel than Abraham knew. But it is the same thing. Abraham believed the good news, the gospel, and was justified. And he's justified the same way we are. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's how we get in the kingdom also. In fact, let's go to Romans. Romans back a couple of books, maybe three books, to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Go down to verse 20. Talking of Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's where faith rests, on the God who keeps his promise. Not in Abraham's ability, but in God's promise. That's where faith rests. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. What will be? Righteousness. Who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Amazing words. Let's continue in Hebrews chapter 6. Talking of Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. God now is addressing Abraham And we are reminded of the fact that when God made the promise to Abraham, God swore an oath. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. Let me find my place there. And look with me in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. All right, what are we seeing here? God stooped. God condescended. All he ever would need to do would be make a promise. But on top of the promise, or underneath the promise, to help Abraham believe, he swore an oath. Saying, verse 14, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, this is a reference to Genesis, not chapter 12, not 13, 15, 17, 18, but Genesis 22. Let's go back there. This is the passage that was read earlier in the service. Genesis chapter 22. God had made a promise. God had said through... uh, your own loins, Abraham, and through Sarah and her body, even though both bodies are good as dead, I will supernaturally cause my word 
to be fulfilled and you'll have a son. And yet, there came a time in the young man's life, Isaac, where God tested Abraham and asked him, and asked him the amazing thing, sacrifice your son. Look at this, after these things, Genesis 22, Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, God said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Could it be that God was actually asking this? Yes, he was. Now, we're understanding that in history a lot of child sacrifice was going on. I think in the, along the way God was bringing a, an end to that amongst his people by what took place here. But God certainly told Abraham to do the unthinkable, sacrifice your son. And you know the story. Abraham took his son, who probably had more might than him. Abraham was, a, was an older man. We're not sure of the age of Isaac. Some say somewhere between a teenager and maybe even up to age 30. But he had more strength than his father, but submitted to his father as Abraham, the father, bound his son, put him on the altar. Amazing. And Abraham raised the knife and was about to slay his son when the angel of the Lord cried out. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then God made provision. The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, verse 14, or Yahweh Yireh in Hebrew. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, look at this, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is the only place in the life of Abraham where God makes an oath with him. By myself I have sworn. This is what's being referenced to in Hebrews 6. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. In blessing I will bless you. And in multiplying I'll multiply you as the stars of heaven and the sand is on the seashore. He'd already had that promise, but now he could be more sure about it because God had not only promised it, but has now promised it by means of an oath. Here, back to Hebrews 6, God swears by himself. In a criminal trial, even today, when a witness is called to the witness stand, certainly used to be the case, I haven't kept up, but maybe there's been edits, but what would take place, the witness is called to the stand and he is asked to take, he or she is asked to take an oath and what is said to him or her is place your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand and repeat after me, I swear to tell the truth, 
the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Finish it for me. So help me God. Why all this? Why, why even in our culture do we do things like this? Well, because we don't know how valuable the word of the person is, quite honestly. They could be full of integrity, but we don't know. So the court needs something more. Someone or something else. And therefore something greater than the person is invoked. God. Someone can then face great consequences if they lie on the witness stand. Uh, That's because a lot is at stake. Someone can either live or die by means of a testimony. Give a false testimony, you can be in trouble. There's solemnity here. The old word would be gravitas. It's it's something that should cause your heart to, to race a little bit, to be on the witness stand and speak knowing you're required to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God. And oftentimes an attorney will say to the witness, I remind you, sir, you're under oath. That's not the only place where this kind of thing happens. Even in our culture, we say things like, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on the lives of my children. So what does God do do when he makes an oath? He can look around at anything else, and there's nothing like him, and there is nothing more valuable, there's nothing more that is full of integrity, There is nothing more majestic, there is nothing more worthy and of worth than himself. And so looking around, he says, I am the most valuable, trustworthy thing, so I'm going to swear by myself, because there is no one greater. God being the most valuable, trustworthy person, greater than all other people's integrity combined, swears by himself. So he's stooping, he's condescending to swear an oath because there's no one greater for him to swear by. So he swears by himself. In other words, I swear by my own integrity. Why? For our sake. For our sake, not for his. He knows that everything he says is true. He knows he will do everything he said. But for our sake... To help us, he swears an oath for our sake so that we know that God's very integrity is on the line. We can be sure his promise will be fulfilled. It's a genuine promise. Look at verse 15, Hebrews chapter 6. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, uh, there's a switch here and the switch is now to Abraham and it's a record of his life in believing God. And... Just because God had said it didn't mean that the promise was fulfilled instantly. There were many years where Abraham went without the promise and that's why faith and patience is needed. Abraham's body is good as dead. Sarah's also. But God gets the glory because the promise he made regarding the son was fulfilled. When the child was born, he was named Laughter, Isaac. But Isaac wasn't the ultimate promise. But everything hinged on Isaac being born. There couldn't be a multitude unless you first start with one. Take this one that now is this supernatural child. 
because it's come about, this child's birth has come about supernaturally. Nothing in the natural world helped. God did a miracle. And take this miracle child and offer him. And that presented the crisis of faith for Abraham. Why? How can there be multitudes if my son's dead? And you want me to kill him? Isaac needs to be alive for the promise to be fulfilled, but you're asking me to kill him. This is where Abraham's faith kicked into gear. You remember in Genesis 22, verse 5, we read this. This is the report of Abraham. We're going to go yonder to worship, and I and the lad will return. But I thought he knew he was going to slay the son. Yes, and he would slay the son. It was in his mind to slay the son. But he knew he's coming back. In other words, we'll be back. We'll be back. We're both coming back. How did he know that? Because he knew God was faithful to his promise and the promised seed, Isaac, has to live for there to be a multitude and God has promised there'll be a multitude. So even if I kill my son, if I slay my son, I'm going to step back and say to my covenant partner God, I've done my part, now you do your part. You raise him up from the dead. Keep your place in Hebrews 6. Go to Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, where was that? Genesis 22. Offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac was the promised one. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we're told on the authority of God's word what was in Abraham's mind. I'm going to do what my covenant partner has asked me to do. And in the law of covenant, what is done by one covenant partner presents an obligation on the other covenant partner to Perhaps even do the same thing if required. This is stunning, ladies and gentlemen. Because God saw that his covenant partner, Abraham, was willing to offer his only son on a mount called Moriah. Later on, God, the covenant partner of Abraham, will offer his son. And unlike what happened on Mount Moriah, no angel will yell, stop. The son was slain and was raised from the dead. Many scholars believe that Mount Moriah corresponds to Mount Calvary, that it was actually on the same mountain. It's a little bit of a dispute about that. It was in that region anyway. What an amazing event. Genesis 22. It's a prefiguring of the cross where no one yelled stop. God allowed his son to die on the cross for guilty sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. And it's inherent in this text before us in Genesis and in Hebrews. Hebrews. 
And Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. The son was sacrificed on the cross, the son of God, and God raised him from the dead. Verse 16 of Hebrews 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's all of us, believers in Christ, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with with an oath. He stooped to say, I will do all I say and I will guarantee it by means of an oath. In other words, all the heirs of the promise, listen up, follow along. This isn't, it's incapable of not happening. It's bad English, but hear this. It ain't not gonna happen. It's guaranteed by God's integrity and his oath. For many years I've pondered what verse 18 refers to so that by two unchangeable things, what I believe the two unchangeable things are are these. Who God is and what God has said. Those things are unchangeable. God will not alter the thing that has gone forth out of his mouth. God will not say, I promised it, but I'm not going to do it. His integrity is on the line and his promise is a revelation of his integrity. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, be inspired by Abraham. He believed God despite the bleakness of his situation because God is a God of integrity And once he's spoken, that's the end of the story. God said it. Some people have a banner sticker on their car. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I like to say it this way. God said it, that settles it. That's it. It's going to happen. It's a benefit to you if you believe it, but it's going to happen whether you believe it or not. Jesus is not coming back again for his own because we believe and that allows him to do it. He's coming whether you are in unbelief or not. He's coming back. He said so. So God swearing, hear this, God swearing by himself is the ground of our hope. Why do you hope for heaven? Because of God who's the ground of my hope. John 3.16 is true, as is every other verse in our Bibles. God so loved this world He loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How do you know that's true? Because God is full of integrity. Verse 19, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. An anchor brings security. If you have a boat, if you have a ship, and you are in the harbor, but there are rocks around, you drop anchor to secure the boat, to secure the ship. There may be very severe storms coming in, high waves, 
currents that might cause the boat to drift away. But once you've dropped your anchor down, the boat is secure. And we have this. What is the this? Verse 19. Who God is and what he said. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, a certain expectation, look at this, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now notice again, we've been saying this a lot in recent times, Hebrews is a message to Jewish believers, and once again, they would understand this. We've got to learn about the tabernacle, but they knew about the tabernacle, and they understood that behind the curtain represented the place where God dwells. They knew what it meant. As I've been reading and studying this week, I came upon this realization. Normally, an anchor is dropped down from the boat to the depths of the sea below, to the seabed. But this anchor has not gone down It's gone up. Where is it? The anchor is in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle. It's gone up. And it's there. That's where the anchor is. And because the anchor is there, that's the ground of your hope. Uh, Read uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, think of anchors, securing something, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a flimsy Redemption, not a temporal redemption, not redemption for a little while, but an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, that's the people of God, the elect of God, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them. Who's the them? The called. From the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not the earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see that? You and I are united to an anchor with an impenetrable, strong cord. The reason, verse 20. Hebrews 6, verse 20. 
enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has entered through the veil, not merely for himself, but for us, as our forerunner. Ladies and gentlemen, where he is, you will be, if you believe the gospel. The gospel of the God of promise, who made us in his likeness, made us in his image. We defied him by our actions in word, thought, and deed. We're guilty, sinners before a holy God. But God, rather than justly forsaking all of us, sent his Son into the world, born of a virgin, living a pure, sinless life, and then dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and is now at the place of all authority on in heaven and on earth, that's all being given to him, and he's now seated on the throne with his Father. And anyone who believes, anyone who repents and believes this good news is saved from the anger of God now and forever. Jesus, where he is, you will be. And spiritually speaking, you're there now. I'm there now. Wouldn't I feel it? No, not necessarily. We walk by faith, not by Sight, not by what is revealed to the senses. And Ephesians tells us he has raised us up and made us sit together with him in heavenly places. There's coming a time when your body will catch up with what's the reality right now. You're with him right now. You're in him right now. Seated with him in heavenly places. One day your faith will be sight. Because Jesus tore the curtain in two. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The anchor of your soul is there already. I, I was just in my study and I just had to stop and lift up my hands in my study and say, this is amazing, God. I, I, I just pray the folk will get it. <laughs> oh, please get this. Will you get this? The anchor of your soul is there already. The anchor has been thrown into the Holy of Holies and the strong cord extends to you. And it's not your firm grip on it that saves you, but his firm grip on you. This anchor can never be moved. It's not like some angel does some spring cleaning and says, oh, what's this? Let's take this out. It's there forever. And that anchor is your sure hope in the midst of the storms of life. You're tied to this anchor by the strong cable of the integrity of God and his oath. Your salvation is secure because God is a God of integrity. Isn't it about me and my efforts? No, it's all about him. Salvation is of the Lord. Isn't it about me holding on? Well, you will persevere because he preserves you. We persevere because he preserves. 
Well, isn't it that I need to continue to believe? Yes, because that's the nature of the faith he gave you. It's the gift of God. And the nature of saving faith is not a temporary look at Christ. It's a lasting, forever look at Christ. Abandoned to his grace, saying, only by him am I here in the courts of heaven. Your salvation, and that's the message here. That's why this language is being utilized. There's an oath and there's an anchor. And your salvation is as secure as the God of promise has integrity. The oath he swore to Abraham. Daniel Towner in 1902 wrote this, and we'll finish with this. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, On my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. I trust as we've gone through this passage, your faith has been affirmed, not because you feel something, but because God has said something. God has made promises to you He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who believes shall not be disappointed. He who believes in Christ has eternal life. Your faith is as sure as God's promise. Many times people are asked this question, why should God let you into my heaven, His heaven? Why should, if God was speaking to you, why should He... Say, oh, come in to my kingdom, come in forever. If God were to say to you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would your answer be? Many professing Christians turn to their actions and say, well, I've done this, I've done that. Do you realize that's not the basis? It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's grace and grace alone. And the right answer is, I can't think of a single reason why I should be led into heaven except My Savior died for me in my place. He took the punishment I deserve and has given to me a righteousness that is not my own. He cancelled out my sins. He has given me righteousness and not on that basis alone. I can stand before you, Father. I've got no other plea but the blood of Jesus Christ. I've got no other plea but His righteousness counts for me. I believe the good news and it's been counted to me as righteousness. I've got no other speech, Father. I've got no other thing to say but Christ and Christ alone. My answer is Christ. That's why I can be led into heaven. And God says, come boldly, my son. Come boldly, my daughter, into my kingdom. Inherit the kingdom forever and forever based on the work and the merits of Jesus Christ alone. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is something that was promised to Abraham and you believe in Christ. You are a child of that promise too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing gospel.
that Abraham believed and we believe because you gave us faith. Cause us to have this strong, enduring, infallible, unbreakable hope that we might believe your promise as Abraham did despite the storms. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.